Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we continue our focus on COVID-accelerated change across the healthcare industry with a fascinating article entitled, The Future of Clinical Trials, Decentralized, Diversified, Efficient, and Fast. To dig into that story, I'll be talking with my co-author on the article, John Karens. John is a managing director in the firm's corporate M&A advisory practice. He joined Kane Brothers in 2015 and has over 10 years of experience in a variety of merger and acquisition, capital raising, and strategic advisory transactions, which include the minority recapitalization of Redcard by Pantheon Capital Partners, the sale of iCardiac Technologies to ERT, and the recapitalization of Stewart Healthcare System with Medical Properties Trust. More recently, John has immersed himself in the complexities of global pharmaceutical manufacturing, which is confronting its own particular challenges in the COVID era. Welcome to House Calls, John, where the bankers are always in. Thanks, Dave. Great to be back with you and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Okay, John, let's dig into our meaty topic from this month. The recent Rock Health report on venture capital investing uh, came out for the third quarter. And first of all, it's just been a remarkable year, record year in venture funding overall. And Rock breaks it into three categories, venture funding, virtual care, wellness funding, and clinical trials. Before writing this article, I might have been surprised that clinical trials merited its own category, but that's uh, definitely the case. So, John, I know this has been an unusual year in clinical trials. What's been going on? As you'd expect, after COVID hit in mid-March and and many countries uh, went into some form of lockdown, general participation in trials dropped off significantly. Existing trials uh, continued, but there was a big slowdown in patient visits, blood draws, tissue sample uh, collection, and the like. We've seen a, a nice kind of bounce back. If you look at the big publicly traded CROs, they've all talked about kind of a return to normalcy in terms of patient visits uh, throughout the third quarter. The, the other aspect here, though, is more focused on existing trials. Um, there has definitely been somewhat of a pause on new trials, the exception being COVID-related uh, vaccines and therapies obviously have been accelerating over the last few months in terms of new trials, and there's over 300 active globally at the moment. But we did see a number of pharma companies pull back on initiating new trials. One, there was a concern about uh, recruiting patients in this environment. And then two, uh, new protocols needed to be developed around what do you do if you have a patient in your uh, in trial for a new asthma medication that it becomes COVID positive? And, and how do you handle that patient? How do you test for it regularly and make sure you've got a safe environment for that patient to participate in the trial? Set the stage for us by describing the traditional process of vaccine development, focusing especially on clinical trials and why they are so important. I think that the average American knows a lot more about the clinical trial process than they did in, in, say, January or February of this year. 
it's in the popular press. It's on the evening news each night. And I think it's been a, an interesting education for the general populace just thinking about all the work and costs that go into bringing a drug to market. Once you've got an initial vaccine candidate and you you produce that uh, in a manufacturing facility, you first need to test it in a preclinical setting, which is typically testing on animals. And then you really need to take that through three primary phases of clinical development. Phase one is focused on safety. Phase two is focused on efficacy. And then phase three is the broader test around uh, clinical effectiveness and, and testing for clinical endpoints. There's also phase four trials, which will come into play when you're you're looking at kind of comparing the effectiveness of a drug against other drugs in the, the marketplace or longer term testing. We're all anxiously awaiting development of these vaccines. A number of them are in phase three development at the moment and have been moving through fairly quickly, but it takes time. There's a lot of safety protocols and measures in place. We want to make sure that they're they're safe, but they're also effective before we distribute them widely. Well and, and as we've seen, this is a really complex process and Two of the vaccines, uh, Moderna and then just this week, Johnson & Johnson have to go on pause for a while while they try to see why certain side effects uh, emerged in the trial. So let's talk about these clinical trials, how they've been done historically. Sure. A lot of clinical research in the last few decades has been conducted in large academic research institutions as well as dedicated clinical trial sites. In some ways, there's been a decoupling of the practice of medicine and clinical research. And what that's actually led to is a decline in participation, both in terms of the number of patients in the U.S. that are enrolled in trials, as well as physicians that are participating as a primary investigator on a trial. It's a theme that the FDA is actually concerned about. You you want to make sure they've got an adequate pool of uh, participants in the trial. So if you find uh, 100 patients who might meet that initial criteria, Oftentimes, only about 4% of those patients will actually randomize or enroll into a study. So you you need to to reach out to a fairly broad universe of of potential participants to get to qualified participants in the trial. So that that has always been a pain point for pharma. They're looking with partnering with their CRO partners, uh, as well as other pharmaceutical outsourcing uh, companies to try to address some of these pain points. How do we improve patient recruitment? How do we improve patient retention? One of the worst things that could happen to a pharma company during a trial is for you to participate for two years and decide this is just too much of a burden. I don't want to participate for the third year of the trial. Their data set's incomplete. They've lost the value per participant in the trial. So they're also focused on how do we eliminate the friction points for patients? How do we encourage physicians who have good personal relationships with many of their patients to get involved, help to identify the right patients, keep those patients engaged? Yeah. And I think some of the solutions uh, are around this idea of a decentralized model. So going away from the academic research center and then dedicated clinical site to how do we either bring the trial to the patient's home or into alternate settings that are, are closer to home? So in some ways, we'd expect clinical trials to be more active rather than less active. And yet this decoupling of research from practice has created several, you called them pain points or barriers to driving clinical trials or or having the level of clinical trials uh, with the effectiveness we're hoping for. And so the solutions, I guess, first and foremost involve recoupling the practice of medicine with research, making sure that that patients and their physicians, wherever possible, can engage in trials together. 
Let's dig into some companies on these three broad topics, making it easier for physicians to participate in research, e-clinical trials, and then at-home visits. I think you can make it come alive by talking about the types of companies that impress you and where they're putting their effort and resources to develop these individual market segments. So on the first one, getting physicians involved, recoupling that relationship between practice and research. I know you're impressed with the company Elego. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what they're doing and how they represent this broader movement to get more practicing physicians involved back again in research? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting company. They're they're certainly trying to solve one aspect of this kind of decentralized model. And as you said, trying to enable the physician's office to be a clinical site to participate in clinical trials and, and recouple medical research and uh, the practice of medicine. Pretty interesting platform. If you go back, and there's still many doctors that participate in clinical trials, they moonlight in it. It's a side gig for them. It's a nice ancillary revenue stream that isn't subject to reimbursement. But oftentimes what happens is that a young physician is very engaged in clinical research early in their career, and that they find that it's really burdensome to participate in clinical research. There's uh, technology investments that need to be made. There's a lot of regulatory filings and paperwork that needs to be addressed, and just a lot of protocol around engaging in, in, uh, in clinical research in your office. So what's, what's occurred is a lot of these physicians have given up on clinical research. Elego is essentially trying to come in and saying, we will be your outsourced uh, clinical trial research division to make participation in trials really easy for both physicians as well as their patients. And so they bring technology suite, they bring you know educated labor force uh, that can serve as clinical study coordinators. They also bring the relationships with uh, the pharma companies who are looking for patients. And through that that technology suite, they can eliminate a lot of the pain points for the physician. Uh, but also create a really attractive solution both for pharma companies as well as patients. So from the patient angle, you mentioned this earlier, Dave, if you went to your family physician's office or your dermatologist and you've been dealing with an ailment and they recommend a trial that might address it, your willingness to participate is going to be much higher, which you, you, know, you know the doctor personally, you've got a relationship there versus just responding to an ad. Yeah where that has historically been a lot of what clinical research is about is trying to find people with a certain affliction and convince them to participate, oftentimes with a doctor that they've never met before. Yeah. So uh, it's certainly a different you know, touch point in terms of trying to bring a patient and get them engaged in a trial. So I think it, it's pretty interesting. From a practical consideration, typically your physician is also in your community. You're not having to drive into an academic research center you're going to your local doctor's office, which is pretty attractive to the patient as well. From the, the pharma company perspective and even the CRO perspective, your ability to get to the right patients quickly is definitely aided. Elego and some of the other companies in the space, uh, there's another company called Objective Health that, that offers a pretty similar model right now, very focused on the GI market. They're able to access the EMR on in kind of a, a blinded fashion, but to identify patients within the existing practice that might qualify for an upcoming trial. And so very quickly get to, mm -hmm. you know, the hundred people that might, uh, might be in the network that already qualify and then, you know, working with the physician office to uh, make outreach, uh, see if they, they would ultimately 
qualify to uh, to randomize into the study. So lots of nice kind of aspects. It's a win-win-win across you know the provider, the patient, and the pharma company. So pretty elegant solution and one that I think is going to gain more traction. Mm-hmm. got has a network now of kind of over 600 physicians working with a variety of different physician practices from kind of small you know, couple doc uh, offices to large multi-specialty physician groups. I think we're going to see more and more traction in this space. So maybe you could shift the focus slightly and talk now about how we're using technology to do all of these things much more effectively. There was an emerging theme, I would say, 12 months ago that dovetailed with this idea of decentralization. How do we make trial participation easier for the patient? There was some general kind of positive feedback from pharma. They were interested in it. But similar to some of the broader themes of how is COVID accelerating a trend since February and March, enabling virtual visits for trial participants. Clearly, there were limitations in the second quarter about uh, ability to travel. We saw a lot of the big CROs uh, reporting that overall patient visits were down in the second quarter. A number of companies were trying to solve the solution with, uh, you know, essentially a more sophisticated and and kind of turbocharged telehealth visit. So we think about the normal telehealth visit that you and I might encounter if we've got uh, a sore throat, interact with a a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. Here, the idea is a little bit different in that you're going to be enrolled in a trial for three years. I could justify sending out a a technology box to your house that has an iPad, blood pressure cuff, and a pulse ox meter that are Bluetooth enabled, other peripherals that can can measure your vitals so that these virtual visits are a little bit more sophisticated and comprehensive relative to a telehealth visit. Mm-hmm. There's companies like Science37 uh, that recently raised a, a round of capital here. Another business called Thread that raised uh, some capital in the last few months. Both of those companies experiencing incredible demand and inbound interest in their virtual offerings. CROs, drug manufacturers are all trying to figure out how they could partner with companies like Thread and Science37 to enable virtual visits. So it's a pretty exciting time. I think this trend would have played out over the next four to five years. There would have been uh, modest adoption. It may have been more focused on certain therapeutic categories that lent itself to a virtual visit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh COVID, uh, like a lot of things, has, has certainly poured fuel in the fire and accelerated that uh, that change. You know, John, one point you referenced uh, in your description of Elego, I think, makes for a nice transition to talking about diversity that researchers have in the participant pool. The need for doing that's become glaringly obvious as we wrestle with COVID and its disproportionate impact on people from low-income communities, particularly black and brown individuals, uh, as well as as older uh, individuals. So the ability to reach into these groups and get them to participate with trust and confidence in study trials is really important. I think we've all seen a number of accounts in the popular press, particularly around the vaccine trials, where the drug manufacturers are, are making a concerted effort to make sure they've got a diverse patient population who's participating. This is partly a function of, of who's being impacted by COVID, as you suggested, Dave, but it's also something the FDA wants to see. The FDA is not going to look favorably on a phase three study that is only done on participants just in China, right? Um, they they want to have a, a broad population that has ethnic hereditary diversity, uh, different genotypes, 
and then even just geographically diverse in terms of, of the environmental factors. So you think about something really simple like a new allergy medication, uh, certainly geographic diversity, someone who lives in Seattle versus Atlanta, Georgia is going to have a very different hay fever season, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So that, then there's uh, much bigger implications around the hereditary and specific genotyping within that patient population. The FDA really values diversity, um, particularly as it evaluates safety as well as efficacy. It's not uncommon to see different levels of efficacy across different patient populations. So as broad as possible, as representative of a sample size as they can, they can attain, that's really what they're looking for. And that's why we think, I think the decentralized trials are pretty exciting in terms of encouraging this participation. It almost gets you into the realm of personalized medicine, doesn't it? In some ways it does. It does. I, I think, you know, kind of multifaceted in terms of, you know, what's driving participation, but, you know, whether it's it, your doctor locally participating in a trial, the fact that, you know, 75, 80% of your visits might be able to be handled virtually and making it really easy to participate, and then even bringing the trial to the home, right? Yeah, you mentioned earlier that Science 37 has had a big big raise. Maybe you could talk a little bit about them. And uh, we've also had some discussion on this third group, the at-home, and uh, maybe you could discuss a couple of the companies there, because I think that rounds out our kind of three-part model for describing how these compounding effects are are really going to lead to better, more cost-effective clinical trials. So I'll let you you talk about some of the exciting companies that you're seeing and working with. Absolutely. Science37, Red, Clinical Inc. are, are companies that all receive some kind of new capital over the last six to eight months all of which de- developing different types of solutions that build upon some of the existing technologies. So uh, talked about earlier, the last five years, there's been a lot of adoption of patient reported outcomes on your smartphone, but then how do you then couple that with a, a more of a telehealth solution to enable visits? All those companies are seeing just tremendous demand for their services, and they're all trying to refine their model and customize it for each of the trials. You're never going to el- eliminate all visits to a clinical site, but a, a lot of people believe, depending on the therapeutic category, for example, like an asthma or COPD study, pretty good uh, trials that will allow for at-home participation, uh, 75, 80% of your visits could be virtual. In contrast, you know, if you need to be infused with a medicine in an ambulatory care center, maybe an oncology study, that may not lend itself to an at-home model as much, but there's a number of studies that certainly would. A lot of interest in it, uh, and I think that uh, it goes back to that point about patient recruitment and patient retention. As a prospective patient in a trial, if I know that 75, 80% of my visits can be done remotely, that's attractive. I'm willing to sign up to that three-year commitment. It's less of a burden on me, so eliminating that point of friction. Same idea on, on, on patient retention. If you're a patient in a trial, eliminating some of those friction points with the hope that you, you stick with it. You see through the trial to its completion over the three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that pretty interesting model. <laughs> yeah. What about that last mile problem? How do we make it easier on patients to get and provide the services and information that the trial needs? It's a big, interesting question. Uh, and, and there aren't the easiest of solutions, but there's some interesting companies out there that are trying to address it. You think about eliminating 75, 80% of uh, the visits to a clinical site, it's really exciting. But in a pharmacological study, 
you need to be drawing blood regularly, you need to be taking tissue samples. Uh, those are essential to understanding the impacts of the drug, the efficacy of the drug. Uh, so that needs to be happening with some kind of regular cadence. Some groups have approached it by suggesting you go to your local you know, Quest or LabCorp office. I think there's a pretty interesting group of companies, though, that are saying, can we go into the patient's home to handle blood draws, either with infusion nurses, phlebotomists, or you know, actual nurses or doctors that are part of the trial team? They're going to visit patients. You think about immunocompromised patients, geriatric patients that are a little bit more homebound, bringing the trial to them. And, and uh, I think particularly you think about blood and, and tissue samples, you can't eliminate that from a trial. And that, that's that last mile issue that the industry is wrestling with. Uh, I think it's an interesting intersection with some healthcare services companies that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. You know, I mentioned that the idea of infusion nurses, even life insurance companies that might employ a, a group of phlebotomists to go out in the home. Some of those organizations are partnering with CROs to try to solve for this right now. So pretty interesting group of companies that are trying to find a way to uh, to bring the trial to the home. Well, one of the things we've discovered through COVID is that uh, hospitals really can't run without patients. And turns out clinical trials really can't run without patients either. And this has been a fascinating discussion about how innovation and technology are helping to accelerate clinical trials generally, and then specifically with regard to a COVID vaccine, getting us one faster than we might ever have expected. Uh, so, John, thank you so much for this discussion. You know, I, I can't let you go, though, without having you make one big, bad, bold prediction about the healthcare marketplace in the next three to five years. So what do you think we're going to see that maybe others don't? I do think this theme of decentralization is an interesting one. I think we will see increased participation in clinical trials, partly a result of some of the broader education that's going on in the marketplace right now. I think that it may be an interesting twist for pharma in that they've spent the last four or five years really battling pricing pressures. In some ways, this is a, an interesting PR event for them. I, I think there's a greater appreciation of, of the cost of developing and bringing the drug to market. It's complex. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. So I, I do think from just a broader PR perspective, it's an interesting moment in time for pharma. But I think that we will likely also see increased trial participation because of this, mm -hmm. uh, just broader education in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, this goal of getting a COVID-19 vaccine essentially within a year is every bit as ambitious, I think, as the challenge John Kennedy laid before the nation in the 60s of getting an astronaut to the moon uh, within the decade. And the same elements are coming together, science, innovation, professionals kind of across the spectrum. And we're seeing all kinds of new ideas, new business models emerge. So I think you're right. We'll start thinking about the world as pre-COVID and post-COVID. And while there's a lot of pain right now, I think in the post-COVID world, we'll see some new ways of doing things that will really accelerate progress. And, and that, that's pretty exciting. Thank you, John, for this fantastic discussion. I encourage our listeners to read our great article, The Future of Clinical Trials, Decentralized, Diversified, Efficient, and Fast, if they'd like to learn more. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep slaying dragons. You as well, Dave. Thank you so much for the time.